We come this Lord's Day to what is probably the final episode in our series, Put Not Your Trust in Princes, to review. It's been several weeks. No matter how much hope we place in our kings or leaders or institutions, they always fail in the end because the people always fail. Samuel warned that if the people continue in sin, God will destroy both the people and their king. Saul disobeyed God, King Saul. He catered to the people's carnal desires and then began to long descent into paranoia, delusion, and madness. God took away the Holy Ghost from Saul and tormented him with an evil spirit from the Lord. When Goliath challenged the army of Israel, Saul was full of fear. Gone was his holy boldness when his people were threatened. When David presented himself to fight against Goliath, Saul scoffed at the lad. But God prevailed through David and he slew Goliath and brought a great victory over the Philistines. But the women of Israel began to sing David's praises and Saul was very angry because David was getting better PR than he was. Saul became very envious of David's popularity because he knew that the Spirit of God had departed from him and now rested upon David. Before it was over, Saul was trying to track David down across the countryside and it descended into a farce when Saul began to prophesy and lay all night on the ground naked. When Saul took offense at David for a small slight about a feast day, Saul exploded against his own son Jonathan, cursing him, slandering his mother, and declaring that as long as David lives, the kingdom itself is under attack and subject to being ripped from Saul's hands and those of his heirs. Saul then tries to murder Jonathan in his rage. And when Saul finds out that a priest has innocently helped David along the way, Saul has that entire branch of God's priesthood liquidated. Indeed, Saul did more to annihilate the priests than he did to destroy the Amalekites. Meanwhile, Saul pursues David across the countryside and twice David spares the king's life. Saul is repentant for a time, but then back in hot pursuit to murder David. Finally, in the depth of his madness, Saul is destroyed by the Philistines. When God won't answer his question, Saul resorts to witchcraft. The spirit of Samuel tells him that tomorrow his whole house will be slain and the people with him. Saul was obsessed to madness to retain his kingdom. He started out not wanting to be king, but very soon the power went to his head. Saul turned from obedience to the Lord and humility over to pride, disobedience, and appeasement of the people to maintain his position of power. When the evil spirit from the Lord began to torment him, Saul started to attack the very people who supported him and tried to help him. Saul became envious, paranoid, and then murderous. He tried to kill David, he tried to kill his own son, and he butchered the Lord's priests. Then Saul wondered why God wouldn't answer his prayers. When Saul finally turned to witchcraft, he fulfilled Samuel's judgment against him to disobey is as the sin of witchcraft. Saul disobeyed over and over until he turned to witchcraft. The root of Saul's sin was his grasping at the kingdom to stay in power, to preserve his legacy and his dynasty. In all that, he became morally and spiritually broken. Saul did some mighty and good things for Israel. 
Sometimes he seemed to grasp his sins and repent for a while, but Saul always descended further and further into paranoia, madness, and criminality. Can we not see similar conduct in our own leaders today, grasping at power to hang on to it, descending into irrationality, foolishness, bitter accusations, wild flamboyance, paranoia, law-breaking, all to hold on to power and not let go? The evil spirit merely exacerbates a man's sin nature and disobedient streak, and we lose control of ourselves behaving in self-destructive ways. The Lord Jesus dealt with the worst forms of demon possession and madness. One day a father brought his son to Jesus for help. The son was torn with convulsions, writhing, foaming at the mouth, and self-destructive conduct involving water and fire. The poor man cried out to Jesus, If thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Perhaps these are the saddest words ever spoken. The Creator, the King of glory in the person of Jesus Christ, has all power to set right all things and to destroy all demonic forces. Yet this man didn't know whether Jesus could help his son or not. He wasn't like the leper who came to Jesus and said, If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. He didn't understand that it was only a matter of whether the Lord Jesus would rescue His Son, not whether He could rescue His Son. So this father had a very weak faith, but praise God, Christ's power to save does not depend upon the strength of the faith we exercise, but rather upon His infinite power to redeem, to redeem and rescue us. The poor father cried out to Jesus, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. Here is the proper position of all poor sinners before the Savior. Only Jesus can save us from our foolish disobedience, our fears, our manias, our paranoias, even our demons. This salvation comes not by calming music or drugs or psychiatrists. Only the power of Jesus can save any of us. We must always be calling upon the Lord Jesus to deliver us in all things. For to us, Christ's deliverance comes as a free gift. But to the Savior, it cost Him His life. He laid down His life to save His poor, helpless sheep. Thus, for all believers, we must call out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help Thou mine unbelief. Now, it wasn't only Saul that, in a sense, betrayed his people. As we have pointed out, all rulers ultimately betray their people one way or another, and all peoples ultimately betray their rulers. And the cycle is a sympathetic vibration that goes both ways. But think of the passage we read earlier this morning about how David himself brought harm to Israel. And we read the beginning at, 2 Samuel 24, the first three verses. And again, the anger of the Lord, note this, was kindled against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the Lord uses the misconduct of the king to bring judgment on the people. There's misconduct by the people, and then there's misconduct by the king. And they vibrate in sympathy with each other. For the king said to Joab, the captain of the host which was with him, Now go through all the tribes of Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, and number ye the people that I may know the number of the people. 
And Joab said unto the king, Now the Lord thy God add unto the people, how many soever they be an hundredfold, and that the eyes of my lord the king may see it. But why doth my lord the king delight in this thing? Well, I think we know the reason would have been pride, inquisitiveness for knowledge which the Lord did not permit the king to have. David didn't have any good need for this knowledge. And they wasted nine months going around collecting all this information. You think of how the Lord used the king's misconduct to punish Israel. Proverbs 21 at verse 1 says, The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. As the rivers of water, he turneth it whithersoever he will. You see, even the king is no match for God's power. And the Lord is in control of the decisions of the hearts of kings. Now this doesn't mean kings only. It just means if he's in control of the hearts of kings who are so full of their own ideas of their majesty and their power and their authority to have done what they want, if God controls the decisions and the thoughts of such a powerful one, how much more does He control the thoughts and the acts of all of His creatures from beginning to end? And so, this is just an insight into the way in which God works His purposes. If God determined to punish Israel, we know He is just and had good reason to do so. And if you study carefully, you will find that Israel never gave up all of its idolatry. There was always an undercurrent of idolatry in Israel, and the Lord was always exhorting them to abandon their idols and serve only the true and living God. And he had laws that required the rulers to stamp out idolatry. But in many places, it didn't seem they took those laws very seriously. And sometimes the kings themselves engaged in public idolatry. So the point is that before it's over with, the Lord judges Israel. Tens of thousands of people are slain because of David's pride and disobedience. So here is another example of Samuel's warning that if the people will not see sin, God will destroy both them and their king. You see, it's not just Saul he was talking about. It's a general principle that applies to all mankind even to this day. So then what is the Lord's standard as far as rulers is concerned? We think of this text that comes one chapter earlier than the incident we just covered However, it probably occurred after the debacle with numbering the people. Second Samuel 23, where we read this, Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me and His word was in my tongue. The God of Israel said, The rock of Israel spoke to me. He that ruleth over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. And he shall be as the light of the morning when the sun riseth, even a morning without clouds, as the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. So David, under the inspiration of the Spirit, announced what the standard is for rulers of all people. That he must be just and rule in the fear of God. 
And if he does that, then his land will be most blessed and he'll be like the shining of the grass after a rain. He will be a blessing to the people if only he fears the Lord and rules in justice. But you see, not Saul, not even David, could meet this high standard which David was aware of. And he probably said these words at the end of his life looking back over his failures and his successes and the ways in which he had disobeyed God's commandment. What it comes down to is the only ruler that's going to perfectly comply with what the Lord has set as His standard for the rule of people is our Lord Jesus. He's the only one, you see, that rules justly and rules in the fear of God. And you can read in the Old Testament in Isaiah 11 and in other places those very words used to describe the rule of the Lord Jesus. While we know the verse well in this season, Isaiah 9 at verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with justice and with righteousness from henceforth even forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So as we've said, many times before. The only prince that we can put our trust in is the Lord Jesus Himself. All others fall short of the glorious, perfect, and righteous mark of our Lord Jesus. Only Jesus can rule us rightly and justly. All other rulers, no matter how good they be, fall short of that mark. And we have been provided with a plenty of rulers on this old world who have completely turned away from justice and from the fear of God and have ruled oppressively and like fascists and totalitarians. And only Jesus, you see, can rule rightly and justly because only Jesus can reconcile us to God by His blood. You think about it. If Christ came and set up this kingdom with a physical substantiality as we believe He will one day, but that He rules already over all things. But if He were to come and execute public judgment against the wicked and He had not cleansed His people by His blood, why in the end we would all be put to the sword because we would not be able to live up to the righteous standard of the Lord Jesus. And that's why you really don't want the kingdom to come in like the Jews expected before the sacrifice, the salvation, the rescue from our sins is established so that we might be made fit to be ruled by such an one. So that the sins of the people might be taken away. And therefore the people would not be judged and neither would their king be judged. God gives us a king that ensures that we will not continue in our sin, and that therefore we nor the King can ever be destroyed. Rather than our own sins polluting 
our King, or His sins leading us to sin, He having no sins, but rather He took away our sins, upon Himself our sins were judged in His body on the tree by God, and His righteousness is imputed to us, and by His power we are conformed to His image, sanctified, made holy unto our God. And so we come to the last consideration in this long series, Put Not Your Trust in Princes, and that is this. We have a king who is not crazy like Saul. He is not paranoid. He is not delusional. He is not driven by an evil spirit. He does not betray his friends. No, our King, the Lord Jesus, is all wisdom and knowledge and power and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Paul tells us at the end of 1 Corinthians 1 at verse 30 that he becomes all those things to us, his people. He becomes our wisdom, knowledge, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. We who had none of these things in ourselves, the Lord Jesus fits us up with them. He suits us out. He clothes them with His virtues and perfections so that we His people are transformed into His image. And that means that Jesus heals broken minds and casts away evil spirits by His power over all things. Have you ever noticed, if you go through the Gospels, how often Jesus is healing people possessed with devils or demons? It struck me this morning as I was thinking about this that the Gospel of Luke seems to have the most fascination with this great power of Christ. Luke, of course, was a physician, and no doubt then as now, how to heal spiritually and mentally and demonically defective people is the last great puzzle. Now, you might think that cancer is the last great puzzle, but we're working on it. But hadn't made much progress in casting out demons or fixing broken minds or curing paranoia and delusions. They have some drugs, but they don't work very well. So no wonder Luke is fascinated by this aspect of Christ's power. I'm sure he was fascinated by the physical miracles of healing also. I think those physicians back then could mainly only diagnose and give a prognosis, but not really work any healing on anyone. Remember, Luke is the one who specially points out that the woman with the issue of blood had spent all of her money on doctors, but had got no relief. He understood the limits of the power of the physician. And of course, the physician still has greatly limited powers compared to the great physician, our Lord Jesus. But look at Luke chapter 4 at verse 40, for example. And when the sun was setting, all they that had any sick with divers diseases brought them unto him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And devils also came out of many, crying out and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. And he rebuked them, suffering them not to speak, for they knew that he was Christ. Now, it wasn't widely known, 
by the people that the Lord Jesus was the Messiah. But these demons knew. They knew, didn't they? They had been dreading the coming of the Messiah since the dawn of time, hadn't they? Since they fell with the devil, with Satan, before the Garden of Eden. And so from this text, we see that mentally ill or demon-possessed people have certain knowledge, and sometimes it's extraordinary. You think of those people who are what we call idiot savants that have some miraculous, extraordinary power in some certain narrow, narrow field like mathematics. And yet, everywhere else, they behave like idiots. Or even worse, they have demonic tendencies. Mental illness is deep. They have some knowledge, and these demons, they know who Christ is. They know His true identity, that He's the incarnate Son of God. And they know that He is their great foe. And they acknowledge who He is and that they know who He is. And so Jesus had to shut them up sometimes. And so we should expect demonic or mentally ill people to sometimes speak the truth. And don't be fooled by that. It doesn't mean because they can talk some spiritual talk that their minds aren't broken, that they don't need healing, that they don't need the Lord Jesus to take away their demons. But in the most serious possession which the Gospels describe, which is found in Luke's Gospel, the 8th chapter, and we read this this morning, you remember they went to the Gadarenes and this man showed up when they got out of the boat, when Jesus got out of the boat, he He had had devils a long time and he didn't wear any clothes and he lived in the cemetery and they tried to chain him up and he had break the chains. It says, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God most high? I beseech thee, torment me not. You see, the demons are speaking through this man and begging Christ to leave them alone. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For oftentimes it caught him and he was kept bound with chains and fetters and he broke the bands and was driven of the devil into the wilderness. Now, Mark's Gospel adds a little something extra here. When he saw Jesus afar off, he ran and worshipped him and cried out with a loud voice, What have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High? I adjure thee by God that thou torment me not. For he said unto him, Come out of this man, thou unclean spirit. Well, it turns out that this man is infested with multiple demons, a very serious demonic possession. And of course, the Lord Jesus casts the demons out and permits them to enter into a herd of swine which promptly run down the hill and drown in a lake at the bottom of the hill. You might ask, what were these people doing raising pigs in Israel because pigs were unclean and couldn't be eaten. Perhaps they were used to feed the Romans. Maybe the Romans liked them. Or maybe Israel had backslidden and taken up pork. Who knows? But of course the Lord told Peter that all things are clean. That he's not to reject any food which the Lord provides based on the ceremonial cleanliness laws of the Old Testament which were marks and pictures and types of the Lord separating His people from evil and from the world. But the point is that the Lord Jesus heals this man. 
And then the man wants to follow him. Verse 38, The man out of whom the devils were departed besought him that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to thine house, and show how great things God hath done unto thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done unto him. Notice his deep spiritual insight, which must have escaped many of the Lord's disciples even at this point, that he knew that Jesus is God. And when Jesus told him, go testify to the great things God has done for you, why he went and published it, blazed it abroad, the great things that the Lord Jesus had done unto him. So you see that this man was healed of his demonic possession and he possessed a peculiar spiritual insight that didn't become widespread until even after the resurrection of Christ from the dead. And then soon after, the Lord Jesus gives His disciples power to heal and to cast out devils. We read that in Luke chapter 9, the next chapter. Then He called His disciples together and gave them power and authority over all devils and to cure diseases. And He sent them to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. And you remember that they come back, Mark chapter 6 at verse 12, they cast out many devils and anointed with oil many that were sick and healed them. So Jesus not only could heal devil infestation, but He ordained these apostles to do likewise. And then they come back in Luke chapter 10. They 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through Thy name. This was what impressed them the most about their service to the Lord Jesus. But then the Lord Jesus says, Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. So many people focus on miraculous signs of healing and preach miraculous signs of healing. And the people ooh and ah over miraculous signs of healing that there's not any ooh and ah left in them to rejoice that the Lord Jesus saves poor sinners and that if you've trusted in Jesus, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And you'll be raised in power and glory one day at the end by Christ. This is the better thing, you see, than having all sorts of miraculous powers of healing. Now, we find later on, we find out why Jesus cast out these demons. In Luke chapter 11, we read this, as He was casting out a devil, and it was dumb. And it came to pass, when the devil was gone out, the dumb spake, and the people wondered. But some of them said, He casteth out devils through Beelzebub, the chief of the devils. And others, tempting Him, sought of Him a sign from heaven. Now, think about how crazy that was. He was casting out demons. And that wasn't a good enough sign for them. They wanted another sign. See, it never did any good for Jesus to provide signs to the unbelieving Jews because no matter what the signs were, they were never satisfied. They demanded another sign, a different sign. And in verse 20 it says, If I, with the finger of God, cast out devils, no doubt the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
This is the reason that he did it was as a sign that he was sent from the Father and that he was there to reveal the kingdom of God. In other words, it was to establish his bona fides as Messiah. But you see, it only works for the people whom God has called to believe on Jesus in the first place. It doesn't convince anyone who's not one of the Lord's people, does it? They always find a reason to scoff and to explain away and so forth. You can never win an argument with those kind of people unless the Holy Ghost changes their hearts. But the Lord Jesus warns about the danger of personal reform and a natural respite in verse 24. When the unclean spirit is gone out of a man, he walketh through dry places seeking rest, and finding none, he saith, I will return unto my house whence I came out. That is, the demon goes back to the place he had, to the person he had infested, possessed. When he cometh, he findeth it swept and garnished. Then goeth he and taketh to him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter in and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. So you see, it's not good enough to wriggle out of control by a devil on your own steam or with drugs or psychiatrists or whatever, because you do it that way. It's not a healing of God, not a healing of the Lord Jesus. Why then they'll just come back worse, you see. And that's what Jesus is warning about. Only the power of Jesus can make a permanent cure of this dread disease. Most remarkable and of most encouragement to us all, there is the incident of the healing of Mary Magdalene. You read in Luke 8, came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him and certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils. She had been possessed with a host of demons. And the Lord Jesus had healed her. It cast them out. And so she turned in service to Him. She was one of the women that went with the disciples and Jesus all over the country, ministering to them in domestic matters, you see food and clothing and washing and other things. And those were important. And notice how Jesus and the Holy Spirit take pains to acknowledge these things and to list these people. She turned from being possessed by devils to loving service to the Lord Jesus and to His people. Then in John chapter 20 at the resurrection, we find Mary Magdalene at the center of it all, don't we? John 20 at verse 1, The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth and cometh to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher, and we know not where they have laid Him. This is a remarkable text. Because you see that Mary Magdalene was true and loyal to the Lord Jesus even after He was crucified. She didn't run away and hide. She didn't go mope somewhere. She wanted to be there to anoint the body of Christ the morning after the last Sabbath was concluded. Couldn't do it that day. 
but she was one of the women that went and took piles of ointments and spices and so forth to finally prepare the body to be laid to final rest. So she goes there and she's in a panic because the Lord Jesus is gone and the stone has been rolled away. And so after Peter and John had examined things and left, the disciples went away again into their own home, but Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher and seeth the angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back and saw Jesus standing and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Who seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, that I may take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren. Say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that He had spoken these things unto her. She was the first person, the Gospels tell us, to lay eyes on the risen Christ. I think we spent four or five Sundays many years ago preaching on this very text. The deep meaning of this statement that Christ made Go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father. Here is a pre-Pauline articulation of the adoption of the Lord's people that He designates God the Father as His Father and our Father and places Himself, at least in that context, on a similar basis with the people who trust in Him. God the Father is our Father by adoption just as He is His Father in His unique way. And then He says, to my God and to your God. Again, underscoring the truthfulness of His incarnation as a man that He was under the control of God who was our God also. That He's a real man and the resurrection has not changed that although it is given Him a glorified human body. Now these are pretty deep truths. So she went back to the disciples to inform them of these matters. And when she did, of course, they didn't believe her. You read in another gospel that she went back and told the disciples what Jesus had said and what she had seen. And they didn't believe her. They treated it as some woman's fable, you know, some wild tale. But you see, she loved the Lord Jesus because He had saved her from demonic oppression. She was loyal to Him. She loved Him for it. Think of the transformation in Mary Magdalene from demonic craziness to a clear-eyed love for and dedication to the Lord Jesus even though it may not have been fully grasped, yet what He had done for her at Calvary, nevertheless, she loved them.
and she wept for him. And then she saw him. She was given this privilege to be the very first saint to see her risen Lord. We will also see Jesus better as we are going about doing His business and worshiping Him, especially around this table. I have my own explanation for why the Lord Jesus picked Mary Magdalene to be the first witness of His resurrection. There's a story that Governor Earl Long of Louisiana, his political enemies had him committed to the mental hospital, the state mental hospital. And he managed to wrangle himself out of that by appointing a different person to be head of the state mental hospital who then discharged him with a certificate. And he would go around campaigning and saying, of all the candidates for governor in this election, I'm the only one who's been certified to be mentally competent. I suspect that Mary Magdalene had been crazy with devils. Nobody would ever listen to her. But when Jesus healed her, now she's certifiably the most sane person around. Who better? Who better? What better witness to the truth of the resurrection? They still might not believe her. But she had been healed of her demonic craziness, you see. And you know, when the Lord heals somebody, they're healed up pretty good. So she was suited and fit, you see, by the work of Christ transforming her by His salvation of her. She was fit to be the witness of the resurrection of Christ. And she had the better grasp, you see, of the truth at that point. Better than the disciples, better than the apostles. She was the only one that knew the truth and believed it. Now, Jesus can heal those possessed with devils. Jesus can also heal broken minds, those with delusions and paranoia. But we seem not to really believe that these days. And the challenge is we ought to seek the Lord in supplication for those we know with demons or who are crazy, have crazy minds or who are delusional or live in irrational conditions. We ought to be praying for them. You know, we just roll our eyes and shake our head and walk off and try to avoid them. And how often do we think to pray for them? How often do we pray for healing for those people from the Lord Jesus? We ought to. The, the Scriptures are clear that Jesus has the power to heal people possessed with demons. He has the power to take crazy minds and turn them sane and rational again. We shouldn't write them off. We shouldn't give up on them as far as prayer is concerned, should we? Don't we believe that our Lord Jesus can save and heal? Now, I'm not suggesting that He's going to heal every one of them. There's plenty of folk that pray for the Lord's healing. And the Lord decides otherwise and we are to submit to it. But on the other hand, the Scriptures make clear He can heal even demon-possessed people, even crazy people. And it may be, and it probably is, there's nothing we can do for them. And any time you try to help them, it just makes things worse. They're too crazy and too possessed to cooperate with people like you and me in order to be made better. But Jesus sure can save them. He sure can heal them. He sure can cleanse their minds and hearts. You remember 
what the leper said. If thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. And we need to take that to heart. That it's up to God's will, not ours. What we want is just aspirational. It may not be within the will of the Lord. But it's the Lord that decides. We can only call upon Him and plead for mercy for ourselves and for those that we see that need mercy. We must pray in the Lord's will that He will heal every one of them that we know. And not quit praying till they're healed or we're gone to glory. But you know, looking back from a wider view, to some extent, all of us are mental defects, aren't we? None of us are perfectly sane. It's on a spectrum. It's on a continuum, you see. The human mind is broken. It's finite, first of all, and then it's broken by sin. Filled with folly. The irony is that our minds are our great pride, the great pride of the human race. It's what separates us from the lower animals. That's why we marvel at little fleeting glimpses of intelligence in lower animals that we didn't suspect were there. But in the main, overwhelmingly, you see the pride of humanity is the intellect, the reasoning, the thought, the language. That is our great pride. And we fail oftentimes to grasp that it is broken and defective and bound in sin. This is the reality. You remember Martin Luther wrote that great theological text, The Bondage of the Will, in which he articulates what the Scripture teaches, that our will, our ability to determine and decide what to do is in bondage to sin and the fall. So that we can't do what we want to do. And not only that, we don't want to do what we ought to do. And between those two great rock and a hard place, as it were, we're stuck. And unless the Lord changes our will and opens our mind and our eyes and our heart, we'll still be that way. We'll soon die in our sins. And so we won't believe or repent until the Holy Ghost heals us makes us alive, gives us faith and repentance. You see, in a sense, we all need that healing that Jesus showed so explicitly for the demon-possessed, for the crazy. And even after we've been regenerated, made alive again, trusted in Jesus, even after that we need the power of God sanctifying us and mending our thoughts and minds and hearts And we need to pray God to teach us His ways and His mind and take away our ignorance and sin and fears and misunderstanding. Read through the Psalms and you'll see how often the writer of the Psalms pleads with the Lord to teach Him His ways, teach Him His thoughts, teach Him His law. Make them the precious things of His own heart. And the Lord does do these things to us slowly and methodically. Until one day when we see Jesus' face, the Scriptures teach us, we will finally be completely transformed into His image. Read the Gospels. Note Christ's healing of the possession by devils of people and cry out for deliverance by the King of all His people from all of our mental defects, deficiencies, ignorances, sins. You know, our prince is in this world. 
How often do they fill our minds with falsehoods, elusive hopes, covetous desires? We can see that in operation every time someone gets elected in our country. All of a sudden, the people that voted for him expect all these things that he stuffed their minds full of and almost none of it happens. But they won't give it up, will they? They pretend that he's doing it and after he fails to do it, they'll still insist that he did it. He did everything he promised, they'll say, which is delusional and foolish. That's the way our princes work, you see. They fill our minds with foolishness, delusion, hateful sins, wicked thoughts. But the Lord Jesus is our great prince. He's the only prince we can put our trust in. He never fills His people's minds with delusions, falsehoods, sins, depravities, covetousness, none of that. No, He takes all that away by His bloodshed for us on the cross. And if you're going to put your trust in a prince, there's no other prince to trust but our Lord Jesus. Praise God. We come this Lord's day to the Lord's table. And we come to remember what He did for us. To celebrate the dying that He did for us on the cross. How He had His body torn and mutilated in our place for our crimes. How He poured out His blood to make atonement for us. Let's give thanks for the bread that pictures that body that the Lord Jesus turned over to the hands of wicked men and to the justice of God on our behalf and to save us from our sin. O God, our Father, we rejoice in Your Son, our good King Jesus, the Prince and the Savior that You've given to us to take away all of our sin, to heal us of all of our troubles, all of our iniquities, all of our foolishness, all of our ignorance, and all of our irrationality and craziness. Lord, we thank You. He was obedient unto death and His body was torn for us on the cross. And that You laid our sins upon His body and He bore our sins in His body on the tree and He was numbered with the transgressors even though He had done no crime. And You treated Him as guilty in our place as our sacrifice, as Your Lamb slain. We thank You that He celebrated the prospect of dying to save us when He blessed the bread as we bless it now pray you will show us the body of Christ as we partake of this celebratory feast. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And the Scriptures tell us that on the night our Lord was betrayed, He took the bread and He blessed it and He broke it and He said, Take and eat. This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup. I'd like to ask my Father if He'd give thanks for the cup that speaks of the blood of Jesus shed for the remission of our sin. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that Jesus took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, Drink ye all of it. This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 124 in the black book. His beauty shineth far above our feeble power of praise. And we shall live and learn His love through everlasting days. 
the knowing this, that us He loves, hath made our cup run o'er. Jesus, Thy name our spirit moves, today and evermore. Number 124. 